Um, but for now, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to, to Luke 1. That's where we'll be um, in just, uh, just a moment. Um, so Luke 1, verses 46 or 55 is what I'll read. But I do want to just take this moment to say um, um, a happy Mother's Day to those who are our mothers um, in the room. And today is always a bit of a um, kind of a dual, uh, a dual-edged sword in, in many ways that Today we honor moms, and we're, we're, um, there's a lot of joy with that, but also I think for many of us um, it could be a, a, a day of, of pain or a day of sorrow for a number of reasons. And So I wanted to pray and uh, pray for the moms, the women in our congregation, um, and then uh, I'll read our text for this morning and jump into the sermon. So let, let us pray um, together. Uh, Father God, I give you thanks both for your wisdom and for the beauty of the differences, God, in, in the fact that you have made us male and female. So I, I give you thanks for the women of, of our congregation. My, my faith has been encouraged by them. They have made us a stronger church, and, and they are the evidences of um, the diverse and, and powerful ways that your spirit is at work in your body. And so, God, we, we, we just pause. We know Mother's Day for many of us is a day of great celebration and joy, and, and for others, it, there, there's, there can be pain um, as well. And and so we lift up the women in this room who are mothers in our congregation. We pray that you would give them strength and mercy to do their, their work well, that you'd fill them with the love of Christ towards their kids. And we also lift up uh, those this day brings pain to, God, whether it's because they've lost their mother um, recently or, or in the past, whether it's miscarriage, infertility, um, and we pray for your healing and comforting presence to be near to them. And above all, God, I thank you that those of us in this room that are parents, um, we don't have to parent alone, but you have given us a congregation and a church where um, you've equipped women with this, the Spirit of God to, um, to build us up, to encourage us. And as a father, I need them and I am grateful for them. And so thank you for them. I pray that you would fill uh, the women of our congregation up with your Spirit, that uh, they would bless us and make us a better church as a result, God. We ask these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from a prayer around Mother's Day to um, a song written by a mother the moment she finds out she is pregnant. That's our text for this morning is Mary, um, the moment she finds out that she is pregnant with uh, the Messiah, with Jesus. So hear, uh, hear the word of the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this week I read a fascinating um, article in the New York Times that was titled, Don't Let Facebook Make You Miserable. In the article, it uses uh, recent, reach, recent research uh, to detail a number of ways in which um, you and I, we portray our lives differently on social media than how we actually live our lives. A couple examples. The music app Spotify, it knows uh, the music people listen to based on gender. And so the 10th most listened to artist on Spotify by men is Katy Perry. More men listen to Katy Perry than Bob Marley, Kanye West, Kendrick Lamar. And yet when you go to Facebook, 
Uh, surprisingly, uh, men do not acknowledge their love for Katy Perry at the same rate they listen to Katy Perry. And so more guys have liked uh, on their Facebook page, Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West, uh, uh, Bob Marley, than have liked Katy Perry because apparently that's a, that's a secret love for us men. The article also it points out how we, we tell the truth to Google, but, but Facebook uh, doesn't quite get the full picture. And so, for example, on Facebook... Uh, Titles that begin, or top five posts that begin with, my husband is, end in this way. Top five ways that phrase ends on Facebook. Uh, My husband is the best, my best friend, amazing, the greatest, so cute. Which we can all agree with, I think, right? Um, And so, but on Google, uh, the phrase my husband is, uh, it has a different ending uh, most of the time. So the top four because uh, the, the fifth one was kind of offensive, so I don't want to share it. Um, but uh, the, top four, uh, the top four ways that we, we finish the phrase, my husband is, on Google. Uh, number one is, my husband is amazing, so there's some continuity. But the next three are, uh, my husband is a jerk, my husband is annoying, my husband is mean. Right, so Google, Google gets who we really are because no one knows what we Google. And so Facebook, though, gets, it gets what, other people, what we want other people to see, which is one reason why study after study after study have shown the more, the more time you spend on social media, the worse you feel about your own life, your own self, because you're comparing what someone else is putting on Facebook versus what you are putting on Google. So the author, uh, his, his parting advice in this article is, you know, don't compare your insides to people's, people's outsides, which is good advice, but, but there's more going on here than that. There's more to pursue. And I think it's worth asking why... Why does Google get something different than Facebook? Why are men so afraid to acknowledge our love for Katy Perry? I mean, maybe that one answers itself, actually. But uh, uh, why, why do we tell Google the truth? But why, why does Facebook get something less, get an image we want others to see? And the answer to that question is, is vainglory. The vice we're going to look at this morning. And a vice I'm guessing you actually have maybe never heard of until I just spoke it. It's the most overlooked and forgotten vice. It was, it was subtly dropped from the list of seven capital vices and replaced with pride. But in the, the Christian tradition, pride was always thought to be the chief vice under which all the other vices flourished. And vainglory was one of those seven vices. But over time, it, it fell off the list. And it fell off the list probably at about the time we needed it most. That it may be the most relevant vice, I think, for our culture today. Vainglory. And so let's break down our discussion uh, around it. Four headings. Um, the problem of vainglory. The, the inescapable, uh, inescapable nature of vainglory. The true glory we were meant for and, and the cure. So the problem, the inescapability of it. Like you, you, you are going to struggle with this vice. You can't get around it. Um, the, better, the true glory we were meant for and, and the cure. So first, the, the problem. And before we get into the problem, let me define what vainglory is. I mean, I sort of hinted at it with with the distinction between Facebook and Google. But here's uh, a, a definition of vainglory from Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices. Uh, vainglory is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. So vainglory is where your image is everything, where you live for the applause of others, where you, you cultivate your image within a certain way to get certain responses from people that what matters most to you is not that you, you are good, but that you appear to be good, that attracts the attention and the notice of others so that they will like you, so that they will applaud you, so that they will approve of you. 
And this could show itself in a number of ways in us, but, but two primary ways that de Young points out, vainglory appears in us. The first is that we desire the approval of others in the wrong way. That is, we, we desire it too much. We want the approval of others to such a degree we're willing to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. Right? So we're willing to go into debt to have a certain level of, um, of wealth, of appearance of wealth. Uh, we're willing to blame a failure on someone else, even though it's our fault, so that uh, we look better on, in the eyes of those around us. It's a student who's willing to cheat on a paper or a test to get a grade they didn't actually earn to, uh, to impress a teacher, to impress a parent. So vainglory, it causes us to cut corners. It causes us to go around what's actually true and to present an image so that we get something from others that we want, their approval, their applause, their notice. So we, des- we desire the approval of others in the wrong way, but-, but secondly, we desire the approval of others for the wrong things. Um, just recently, uh, Beauty and the Beast uh, was re-released um, uh, like a live-action version. Or so. I don't know what you call that, but it's, it's, it wasn't the cartoon. They re-released it, and one of the- there's a song actually in Beauty and the Beast that is, just, it's a song about vainglory, and it's the song Gaston. And I, don't, I didn't go back and rewatch this this week, and so I, I think I have my Beauty and the Beast narrative right here. But I think Gaston, he's been rejected by a woman. He feels disgraced. So he goes to the bar, and the guys at the local bar sing him a song to encourage him because he feels uh, down about himself. And so, uh, so the song starts like this. Um, no, I will not sing it, but I am, I'm going to speak it. Uh, the song starts like this. There's no man in town as admired as you. You're everyone's favorite guy. Everyone's awed and inspired by you, and it's not very hard to see why. So why is everyone so inspired by, by Gaston? What, what, what is it about him that attracts attention, that makes people look at him and want to be him? And, and the song details all those things. I'm, I'm going to just give you my three favorites. Um, the reason why Gaston is looked up to by others, is taken notice of by others, is, is one, he, he uses antlers from game he's killed for interior decoration in a way that no one else can. He can eat dozens of raw eggs for breakfast, and in wrestling matches, nobody bites like Gaston. Now, these three things, they all have something in common, which is that they're completely shallow and not worth admiring at all. And similarly, there are people famous in our culture, not because they've done something that is truly admirable, like truly should be taken notice of, but for, for, for shallow things for empty, for vain things. And then, like, we turn inward to our own selves. What are, what are things we want to be admired for? How much, wealth, how much money we have, right? We display our, our toys, our wealth. What college we went to, our physical appearance. I'm not saying that those things don't matter. They do, but, but is that what, others, what you want others to see when they think of you? Is, are, are things ultimately in... And the grand scheme of things are actually pretty shallow things, vain things. But vainglory, it can be worse than this because it, it can also, it's also what's behind um, hypocrisy. That um, Hypocrisy is where you, you have things that are not true about yourself, but you put them on display for others to see and to notice and admire in you, even though the real self, the real person of you, actually does not have those qualities. And so Jesus, he seemed to think religious people are the worst at this. And so he spends a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount throughout his ministry warning religious people about acting one way in front of others to, to receive a certain reaction while inwardly you actually you have no interest in God. The religious people seem to be the worst people 
at this. And, and listen, as, as, a, as a church in our own cultural day today, you know, the, a lot of people look at Christians and, and say, oh, those are hypocrites. And before, before we just dismiss that and say, oh, you know, that's, they're being unharmed, we should, we should take that in and the reality that people look at us and say, you, you appear to be one thing, but in the inside you're not that. Jesus says that, that's hypocrisy and that is, the, that is vainglory. That's the vice where you, you want to look a certain way, but that's not, that's not who you are. Where you want to appear good, but you, you actually aren't good. And so that's how vainglory evidences um, itself. But there's actually there's something more powerful um, behind it here. There's actually something very lonely about this reality. But Rebecca Young, she puts it like this. She says, it's, it's ironic that the art of impressing others and gaining applause involves carefully hiding ourselves just as much as, as it involves showing ourselves off. Vainglory is a chief substitute for true fulfillment of the human desire to be profoundly known by another person, to be known by name, for who one truly is, and to be loved just that way. And so vainglory is this reality where the true, our true selves we have to hide. And our false self we're, we're always putting on display before others because we want re- recognition, we want approval, we want, we want notice. And in light of her quote, I think it's worth asking, do, do other people know you, um, know you by name? Is the real you in hiding? Or do other, do, do other people know who you are. So those, those are problems enough um, with vainglory. Um, but there's a bigger challenge to this because what's, what's interesting about this vice to me is that you actually, you can't escape it. You're, at some point, you're going to struggle with this. And even when you think you're, you've stopped struggling with it, you're actually probably going to struggle with it even more. Here's what I mean. There's, there's two ways that the, the vice of vainglory is inescapable um, to us. The first is that because you are a human being, uh, you are made with, with glory. Now, what I mean by that is glory, according to Thomas Aquinas, is glory is it's goodness on display. And the Bible says in Genesis 1 that every human being is made in the image of God, which means we reflect the goodness of God. Just, just the mere fact that you're a human being and you're alive, you reflect the goodness of God. And Psalm 8 says that in making us, God ordained us. He crowned us with glory and with honor. That we have goodness inherent to who we are as human beings that should be noticed, that should be honored. So think of it like this. Today's Mother Day, Mother's Day, and um, um, good mothers, uh, and, 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 and even bad mothers to some extent, they're, they're glorious. That's glory. It's goodness on display. It's self-sacrifice. Right? Literally, one human being becomes the source of, another, of life to another human being, um, willing to interrupt their sleep patterns at moments notice at a scream, willing to drop whatever they're doing and, and, uh, and, and go and help. Right? That's goodness that should actually, that, should, that deserves honor, that de- deserves applause, that deserves notice. And yet, uh, babies are terrible encouragers. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, my son is, he's 18 months old, my youngest, uh, and he has never said thank you once to his wife, uh, to his mother at this point. Um, he screamed at her countless times. Uh, he's followed her around the, the house, screaming at her uh, nonstop. He's never said, thank you. And th- this is a window into why vainglory will always be a bit of a problem because when you do really selfless things for other people, especially like motherhood, it's built into to what it is. When you do selfless things for other people, it will often go unnoticed. And when other people don't notice it, when no one notices our goodness on display, we at times need to help them notice it and let them know what happens. We remind them, we tell them again and again and again all that we've done for them, all that we've said, all that we've, all that we've sacrificed for them. 
And that's vainglory. That, that part is vainglory when we start demanding others notice. And yet the tension here is that all of us, because we're human beings, we have goodness to give to others. And there should be a part of our lives where other people look at us and say, that was good, well done. And they applaud, they notice. That's okay. So it's inescapable. Uh, vainglory is inescapable to you because as a human being, you have goodness to display that actually should get noticed. The second thing, um, we, we picked Luke 1, uh, not because it was a good Mother's Day text, but because the primary virtue that counteracts uh, vainglory is the virtue of humility. And in this moment, Mary has found out she is going to be the mother of the Messiah, which could have been a reason for boasting in herself or, or, or boasting in her own abilities, her own capacities. But that's not what she does. In fact, she, she actually says the opposite about um, herself. There's a couple things that, that she says about herself. First in verse um, 48. Mary says, for he, for God, has looked on the humble estate of his servants. Right? Mary, Mary, Mary carries the Son of God in her womb now, and she says, I'm, I'm a servant. And then the rest of the, the song is this contrast between uh, the rich and those who are, are blessed in this world and who have everything given to them, and, and those who now God is going to raise up through the Messiah. And in verse 53, Mary says, God, he's filled the hungry with good things. That, Mary's talking about herself there. She, she's referring to herself as hungry, as needy, as weak, as, as, as a servant. She's, not, she's just been told she's going to have the Messiah, and it's not a moment for self-boasting. It is a moment that draws out her humility. But that's, if humility is the way that we counteract vainglory, then humility, uh, or then, then that's another piece of what makes vainglory an inescapable vice to us. Because the more humble that you become, the more you're going to notice it and the more you're going to feel like other people should notice it. So in college, we had a professor uh, who challenged us to do a, a, a completely selfless thing uh, one time um, the next day. And he knew it was going to happen to us, and so he told us. And So we went out and did it. And the moment you do a selfless thing that someone else has told you to do, you, you start thinking, like, what an incredibly selfless thing that was I just did. Like you start, and then you start talking, and you start comparing. It was my thing more selfless than another person's, right? It was, and you just, the moment you do selfless things, you want other people to notice. You, you, if they don't notice, you want to let them know. And so the more, the more you grow in humility, the more moments you have like that. And that's why it's inescapable. You'll, you can't overcome this vice. I think to many, it will be with us until the day we die. So this vice is a, is a problem for us. It causes us to put out an image to others that aren't true. It causes us to hide our real selves. It causes us to chase after approval in ways that, um, that are not healthy, that we ultimately don't, don't get. So what do, what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? And a couple thoughts, uh, the last two points. And the first is that we need to remember the true glory that we were meant for. So Mary says something at the, at the beginning of her song that's very important. She says, um, first, my soul magnifies the Lord. And she's heard this news about the fact she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and her first response is, my soul magnifies the Lord. Mary's own goodness, she says, is meant to magnify God. And so think of it like this. I, I never did this growing up because uh, I, was, I was too soft um, or maybe too afraid of God's judgment. I'm not sure which. But, uh, but in, in elementary class, when a boy would get a magnifying glass and was allowed to go outside with it, uh, you instantly tried to find ants that you could use the sun and try and like, burn it up uh, like you see in you know, books, TV shows, all, all those sorts of things. And, <clears throat> and so I, I remember being, you know, being around a kid who did that. And, and there's a magnifying glass. And the sun pours through the magnifying glass, which actually intensifies the heat and the ant, you know, uh, burns up. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, I guess, if you don't like ants. And, uh, 
And that, that's sort of what Mary is saying here, is that the, the glory of God is pouring through her life. And, and Mary's, Mary's not saying, okay, now look at me. Like, the, it stops at me. Look at, look at the, no, it, it, it goes through her and it magnifies and intensifies the glory of God through her. My soul magnifies the Lord. And so the goodness in our lives that you have, I just said a minute ago, as human beings, we're made in the image of God. We have goodness to share, but that goodness is not ours. It's why Thomas Aquinas says the worst form of vainglory is when you, you take credit for something that God has given to you. That our glory is always meant to point beyond ourselves to a greater glory. And so how do we get to become those kind of people? Where if, if you're a Christian, how do you get to be the kind of person who is magnifying the glory of God to those around you? And Christian history has attached two spiritual disciplines to overcoming vainglory in us, overcoming the need for approval for others, getting to a place where we desire for God to be glorified through us and not for our own selves to be glorified. And those two disciplines are, are silence and secrecy. The silence um, first. The vainglory, it's a vice that requires us to do things to get attention, to get noticed. And that's a part of what makes social media so dangerous for this vice. It's a new avenue from which to seek attention to a lot more people, to get applause, to get likes, in order to feel um, validated, to feel uh, worthy. And again, social media, it's not the vice, right? You can get rid of Facebook and you still have vainglory within you. So it's, it's, it's a symptom. It's not, it's not the sign. And yet, social media gives us a powerful new avenue for vainglory to cultivate and grow and strengthen within us. And with the discipline, excuse me, what the discipline of silence does is it gives you a space to opt out of speaking up about yourself. What would it look like to just go silent on social media for a while, to not post about your, yourself or to not tell the story of what is going on in your life or to not present a certain image for, for others to, to consume? As Sherry Turkle in her book, Reclaiming Conversation, she says this about um, what social media does um, with us as we speak up to get, to get noticed or heard by others. Um, here's what she writes. Um, social media, instead of promoting the value of authenticity, it encourages performance. Instead of teaching the rewards of vulnerability, it suggests that you put on your best face. And instead of learning how to listen, you learn what goes into an effective broadcast. And so what if for this week you, silence for you, like didn't mean like, like a monk, like go out in the desert and don't talk to anybody, for, but just through this week, you're not going to talk about yourself when you enter into conversation with people for a week. And as you talk, you're only interested, what are they saying? Where are they going? What questions can you ask? How can you pour out more of what, pull out more of what they're, they're saying? For a week, could you go without needing to get attention or tell the best story or get the biggest lot? Could you go a week without, without that? The silence helps um, kill that vainglory with, uh, within us. Um, that's the first discipline, silence. Secondly is, is secrecy. And Jesus said that, that especially if you're a religious person, you should work very hard to make sure that your religious devotion to him are not public acts. That when you give generously, like you, sh- you shouldn't write it on a giant check and then carry it into church with yourself and then like lay it on the state. Like don't do that. Um, Jesus says when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is, is doing. When you pray, pray in secret. You don't, need to, you don't need to let people know how much you pray. When you fast, don't look like your life is miserable and you're on this long fast. Like, no, just don't let other people know what you're doing. Don't let other people know your religious devotion. The good things that you do, don't, don't advertise them. Don't publish them. Keep them secret. 
And the reason for that, Dallas Willard explains in Spirit of Disciplines, it's this. It's, um, we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known to help us lose, the tame, lose or tame the hunger for fame, justification, or just the attention of others. One of the greatest fallacies of our faith, and actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief, is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. The vice of vainglory, it's really about asking this question. What, what audience are you living in front of? Whose applause do you most seek? Whose approval do you most need? Who, whose attention are you trying to get? Because with the discipline of secrecy, there's, you've said the only person I'm doing this for is, is God. Because no one else is going to know. And I, I bet, if, listen, if you're anything like me, it's going to be a reason maybe not to do it. Is God really watching? Is, is, can I live before an audience of one? Right? There's not an immediate gratification. And yet that's what secrecy is to do in us, is to cultivate the sense that I live before an audience of one. I can do something only God can see. I don't need anyone else to see that. But maybe you hear that discipline, the secrecy one, and you think, okay, but doesn't Jesus say somewhere else, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in, who is in heaven? Right? How, so how can you let your light shine and do your deeds in secret? And, and as I said earlier, I, I, we as human beings, we have glory, we have goodness to share that we should want others to see. So what does it mean to, to show our goodness? in a way that gives glory to the Father. What does that look like? What does that, that mean? Well, two, two ways to try to unpack that, two stories. The, the first, um, and for a long time I thought that what Jesus meant with that text was uh, Christians should be more moral than other people, and they, look, they come into church, and they like, look at all these moral people. They don't litter. Um, they're really nice. Uh, they don't hang up on telemarketers, like all these sorts of things. And, and because you're a good person, therefore Jesus is... It's real, but I don't. That's not what I don't think. That's what Jesus is saying. Glory is something very different than, um, than moral acts. Glory has a weightiness, a significance to it. And so early in my life, I found Christians and Christianity is largely to be pretty boring. Um, it was something nice people did and mostly predictable. And and then I met someone uh, named uh, named Danny Schaffner. And Danny was twenty eight, and he had a son that was my age at the time. It was sixteen. Um, and his wife was 26, which means uh, either they, had a ch- they conceived a child at 12 and 10, which I assume probably was not what happened, um, or they adopted a, a teenager in their mid-20s, which is what they did. They adopted a teenager from a broken home in their mid-20s. And I instantly was like, who does that? And I had to know. There's, there's something, there was something weighty about their life that I couldn't look away from. That's one story. And another example uh, of what I think Jesus is getting at, that, that you and I are to live our lives in such a way that people are to look at us and not see good acts, but to see glory. Uh, I'm rereading one of my, my favorite books right now, which is Till We Have Faces. It's, it's by C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's, section, it's uh, set in a fictional um, place called Gloam, kind of a medieval-type uh, uh, time frame. And it tells the story of two sisters, two princesses, um, and their love for one another. They're incredibly close as sisters, and... Um, Psyche, one sister, is, is beautiful, um, goddess-like in appearance almost. Um, and then Oriole is, is someone who is, is not physically beautiful, wears a veil most of her life, and most people um, look right past her. And so the turning point in the story comes when um, 
famine and, and rumors of wars and dissension within the kingdom are threatening to destroy the king and his, 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 uh, his, his place. And, and so the priest, the local priest, comes to the king and says, the only way you can escape certain destruction is you have to sacrifice one of your daughters to the gods on the gray mountain. Um, and the king agrees. The king agrees that Psyche will be um, sacrificed to the gods on the gray mountain, tied to a tree and left for dead. And so the night before, they're going to take her off to the mountain. Um, Oriel goes to visit her sister, and, and they talk, and they, they talk about what's to happen. And um, Oriel, in that moment, is devastated and broken, and she wants her sister to praise her and to tell her all the good things they did and to have this moment where Psyche looks at her sister and just says, you've been, you've been the best person in my life to me. You've, you've meant so much to me. And, and, and yet Psyche doesn't do that, which makes Oriel very angry. And that, that's the sin of vainglory right there. It's, it's, she wants notice, approval, acceptance on this last night from her sister, but her sister doesn't give it to her. In fact, her sister begins to reflect on the fact she has, she's actually not scared to go and, and die because if the gods are real, she tells her sister, then in going to the gray mountain, being tied to the tree, um, if the gods are real, she's actually she's going home to them. And here's how she describes what she's, she's feeling in this moment. The sister is to be sacrificed. I have always had a kind of longing for death. It was when I was happiest that I longed most. Do you remember? The color and the smell and looking across at the gray mountain in the distance. And because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. If you could only believe it, sister, no, listen. Do not let grief shut up your ears and harden your heart. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain to find the place where all the beauty came from. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, that longing for home? I hope that lands, but I think that's what Jesus means when he says, people should look at you and see glory. They should see the sense that there is, there's more. Not that we're more moral, not that we, have, we do more of the right things, but that they look at our lives, the way we approach our lives, and there's, there's more behind this. Just like Mary, right? She's, having the, she's giving birth to the Messiah, but there's more going on there. There's more happening there. Do people look at, at your life and, and long for more, more beauty, more life? Because when you and I, when we're trapped in living for the approval of others, when we're, we're trapped in cultivating an image for others to see that they will like, when we make our lives about ourselves, we're obscuring the true glory. The glory that should be pouring through us to others that says there is more. There is more beauty to be had. There's more experience for us to know. And when we live in, when we live in vainglory, we obscure that. We obscure the true, the true glory. So how, how can you and I be cured? What's the cure? Well, if the problem of vainglory is that we're, our lives are always on display, that we're presenting what we think others uh, should see in us so that they will like us or they will applaud us. Um, if that's the problem, then what we need is, is pretty clear. We need to know that there is somewhere, someone um, who is willing to take us in as we are, to glory in us, to promise to never give up on us. And that their acceptance of us has to be so real, so deep, and so true that it drains out all the need for vainglories of this world. We don't need the applause of others because we have this. We don't need to present a false image to others because the, the real self, as broken as it is, has been accepted, has been welcomed 
in. And I would say first that that, that should be what the church is for people. The church should be the one place where we come in and we do not have a sense of, of needing to present an image, to look a certain way, to appear a certain way in order to get in. The, the church should be the one place where you don't have to perform to be accepted. And let's be honest together, almost nobody thinks of the church like that. We have work to do. That's what we should be where people can come in and we say, listen, you're welcome as you are. You don't have to, you don't, you don't have to present an image. You don't have to be fake. You don't, have to, you don't have to win our approval. We are here to love you. The church should be that. And the reason we as Christians should be that is because as Christians, we believe that there is someone who is willing to take us as we are, someone who has gloried in us, someone who has given up his own glory in order to get us back. That's the gospel story that Jesus has offered us, that Jesus offers us, that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that it was for our sake God made Jesus, him who, knew no, who had no sin, uh, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to take our sin. And, and what that means is that, that all the things we hide about ourselves, right, that we don't want out there, that we feel like if they got out there, we would lose the approval, the acceptance, um, the, the love of others. All those things that will never make our Facebook feed. Jesus took those things on himself onto a cross so that you could have his righteousness. Right, so he took our shame, the things that we hide from others, so that we could have his perfect image, his perfect glory. Which means God's glory towards you, towards us, towards those of us who are in Christ Jesus, it is not conditional. We do not have to work to win his applause. You get the applause that was owed to Jesus because he got the shame that was due to us. And so the irony of vainglory, it's this. You and I, we tirelessly chase the approval, the attention of others, never getting enough to ultimately long, uh, that we long for, while Jesus has already shown his full attention to us, dying for us. Dying for us so we might know that in him, we, we will not lose the approval of God. If you are in Christ, you cannot lose the approval of God. You, you, you are not winning for, or you're not working for his approval. You're not working for his acceptance. You don't have to present an image that you hope gets by his sniff test and he lets you. No, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel is that Jesus, who actually could present himself as he was, he never hid anything from us. He was perfect. He gets the cross that we deserve so that we can get the righteousness that he deserves. That's the gospel and may we live into it more. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are ready to meet with us now through the blood and, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And God, we, if we are Christians, we don't come in wondering, all right, is, are we good enough? <laughs> is, we don't have to pray the right words to get your attention. We don't have to make the right sacrifice. We don't have to... Um, to work hard to, to, know, to get you to notice us. God, you noticed us long before we even knew that we needed you, and you sent your son to go to a cross to die for us, to give us new life. And so, God, um, in this moment, would you open our eyes to that reality, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, one of the places that we, uh, we come to, to, to get the approval of God, right? This is his table. He's inviting you to it. Um, is communion, where we're reminded it's his body broken for us, it's his blood that is shed for us. Um, and because this is Christ's table, it's not ours, uh, we practice open communion here, which means uh, you can come uh, in groups of 40, or if you don't have to be a member of our church to receive communion, uh, you just have to have professed faith in Christ. Um, we invite you to come in groups of four to six, take the bread, dip it into the juice, and eat it together at the instruction of those who are serving you. Uh, if you need gluten-free, we have it available on this side of the room. Um,
Take a few moments, pause, think, reflect. Uh, Whose approval are you living for? And then get up and come to the table of the approval that has already been won for you through Jesus when you're ready.